Nothing could disguise the fact that the tour was, as one correspondent described it, exquisitely entertaining. I have hardly ate, drank or slept since I got it. Unlike Johnson's journey, which was a serious topographical, sociological, even anthropological work, Boswell's tour was full of gossip and humour, um, enjoyable most of all because of the interplay between the writer and the companion. Indeed, much of the fun in Boswell's journal arose from his own presence in the story. Boswell did not spare himself when it came to describing incidents which showed him in a poor light. <laughs> and that's, that, that's, that's one of the complete fascinations of it. Next, we return to the relationship between Samuel Johnson and James Boswell, and a trip to Scotland that would go on to feature in Boswell's groundbreaking biography of his elder companion. Why they went in autumn, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> they were sailing, you know, like <laughs> there's some fairly dire moments when they're in a boat, um, but I'll get to that moment. <laughs> Welcome to Meet a Rare Book. I'm Mark Gosper. Guiding us along the way and sharing the remarkable stories they contain is librarian and rare book expert, Georgia Prince. They're still not popular books. They are artworks. Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm deviating from my self-imposed plan of only looking at two books. Today, because I couldn't resist making a wider selection just because it carries on with the story of um, Johnson and Boswell. So last time we were looking at um, Johnson's dictionary, you know, the most sort of significant um, dictionary of the English language, um, really, and, and a, a sort of game changer in terms of dictionaries. And then we also looked at Boswell's um, biography of Johnson, which in its own way was an equally significant um, work of of non-fiction um, and I had already been thinking before about um, looking at the sort of British Isles in general because the 18th century is so interesting from a political point of view in the British Isles because of the um, growth of the union really of Scotland and the changes in Ireland and Wales less so, but it's still an interesting sort of political period, particularly with the two rebellions, so-called, in Scotland against the German Hanoverian kings um, supporting the Scottish Stuart kings back onto the throne. So um, there's a lot of turmoil in Scotland in the 18th century. Um, and Johnson and Boswell did this tour together there um, after Johnson had written the dictionary um, and about probably about 10 years or so after Boswell had first met him, because Boswell first met him when he was in his 20s, and in his 30s with Johnson in his 60s, he finally persuaded Johnson to go to Scotland. And they both produced accounts of the trip. And not only did they go to Scotland, they went to the western coast of Scotland and the Western Isles or the Hebrides. Um, and we have uh, an edition of Johnson's. This is Johnson's Journey, first printed in 1775, and this is the first edition of that. And we also have a copy of Boswell's, um, which came out after Johnson's death and in a way is a, a sort of precursor of the life because in this book, Boswell 
refines or, or works out his process that he then follows through in the life of, uh, what's the word, direct reporting, really, of Boswell, of Johnson's conversations. And when he comes to write the life, he doesn't include, he, he sort of says, you know, for this year, look at, look, at, look at my journey of the Western Highlands. In other words, he doesn't go over it again. And many later editions include this into the life because it is really, in a sense, an episode um, within Boswell's life of Johnson. So these two are where we're starting. This is the book. It's quite a nice little um, rebind, but, it, but it's in the right sort of style. Um, it's called, he's, this is the title page, so it's just very plain. Um, a Journey to the Western Islands of Scotland. And it was printed in 1775, but the journey they undertook in the autumn of 1773. They're quite different styles, the two, and that's part of one of the reasons why I wanted to show them. Um, Johnson begins saying, I had desired to visit the Hebrides or Western Islands of Scotland so long that I scarcely remember how the wish was originally excited. And it was in the autumn of the year 1773, and I was in the autumn of 1773, induced to undertake the journey by finding in Mr. Boswell a companion whose acuteness would help my inquiry and whose gaiety of conversation and civility of manners are sufficient to counteract and turn the page, the inconveniences of travel in countries less hospitable than we have passed. So, <laughs> and this is the sort of tone of, of the whole story. He's quite rational and anthropological and historical, and he's looking at um, the Highlands, and he's really looking at it because he's wondering what remains, really, of the Highland culture following the two rebellions. So the two rebellions, the Jacobite Rebellion, so-called, occurred in 1719 and then later in 1745 when probably the most famous of the two, really, because of so-called Bonnie Prince Charlie or Charles Stuart, who, in fact, was the son of the claimant to the throne who was still alive at that point, who was James and... He was the son of James II of England, and I don't know how much you know about all that, but anyway, basically they were in direct line to the throne. And the their main, or their only really, no, it's probably their main disqualification for being um, kings or, of England was the fact that they were Catholics. This was the problem, and this was the main reason um, behind um, the, the rejection of the British people of them as kings. Um, the fact that they didn't like James II for other reasons is sort of a minor <laughs> side issue, really, but the justification, certainly, and the fear was that we were going to have Catholicism reintroduced to Britain. Um, and so he's very interested in the results of the rebellions, what's happened since then. So one of the things he talks about is the fact that Tartan was outlawed so following the rebellion, you weren't allowed to wear, they weren't allowed to wear tartan, they weren't allowed to wear these um, signs of allegiance to the clans. Yeah. In the islands, it's, he actually says the, the plaid is rarely worn. The law by which the Highlanders have been obliged to, to change the form of their dress has, in all the places we have visited, been universally obeyed. I have seen only one gentleman completely clothed in the ancient habit, and by him it was worn only occasionally and wantonly. The common people do not think themselves under any legal necessity of having coats, for they say that the law against plaids was, plaids, plaids was made by Lord Hardwick and was in force only for his life. 
but the same poverty that made it difficult for them to change their clothing hinders them now from changing it again. And he talks quite a lot about the poverty of Scotland and the Western Islands. But one of the things he is quite disappointed, maybe, is too strong a word, but he, he's talking about the Highlands and the result of the, re, the, the rebellions. And he says, there was perhaps never any change of national manners so quick, so great and so general as that which has operated in the Highlands by the last cons conquest and the subsequent laws. Um, we came thither too late to see what we expected. The clans retain little now of their original character. Of what they had before the late conquest of their country, there remain only their language and their poverty. Their language is attacked on every side. Schools are erected in which English only is taught. And there are lately some who thought it reasonable to refuse them a version of the Holy Scriptures that they might have no monument of their mother tongue. So he was looking really for, for the true um, Gaelic culture and it was already complete, well, it had been deliberately um, put under threat. So it's quite, it's quite a, um, a sympathetic um, and possibly surprisingly sympathetic view of Scotland given all the jokes that he makes in the dictionary about Scotland. Um, and how there's a bit of... But you see, some of that is jokes. That's the thing. We often don't really get that. Now, there's another bit on the change of since the Jacobite Rebellion. Uh, their pride has been crushed by the heavy hand of a vindictive conqueror. You know, this is quite strong words from a man who's actually English and who we might assume was prejudiced against Scotland, um, whose severities have been followed by the laws. So... And, that, and, and this is the tone of, of um, Johnson's whole um, whole discussion of where they where they go. I mean, they go they go up the Western Isles and they go across to Skye, um, and then they try and get to, to Iona because everybody wants to go to Iona, which is that sort of seat of um, Celtic Christianity, and they have quite a lot of difficulty getting there um, because they've got to get on a boat. And at one point, they are on a boat trying to go to Mull, I think, somewhere off Mull, and they basically can't get there because the wind and tide are against them and they have to stop at another island. And it's pretty, it's pretty dangerous, actually. Johnson goes over it <laughs> in a short way. Boswell goes into it much longer. Johnson was seasick and was downstairs. Mm. Boswell was on the deck trying to do something useful, and it's a very interesting description of, what he, <laughs> of him trying to do it. The things that this journey has given me an opportunity of seeing and such other reflection, having passed my time almost wholly in cities, I have been surprised by modes of life and appearances of nature that are familiar to men of wider survey and more varied conversation. Novelty and ignorance must always be reciprocal, and I cannot but be conscious that my thoughts on national matters are the thoughts of one who has seen but little. So it's sort of, given that um, our impression of um, Johnson is often the rather off-the-cuff, witty and, um, you know, sort of <coughs> funny remarks and that, that Boswell has repeated through the centuries. To actually read Johnson's work is quite interesting because he doesn't, he doesn't write like that. Um, what Boswell found very, um, a bit upsetting, really, was that he didn't know initially that Johnson was going to write this. And so he was busy during the whole of the tour, taking down notes, doing his journal, which Johnson had encouraged him to do, and reading out bits to Johnson as they went. And he only found out really towards the end of the tour that Johnson was thinking of writing a book. 
um, which Boswell, Boswell couldn't really um, say, no, you can't. Um, he was the younger man <laughs> and his whole approach to Johnson was one of a pupil and a teacher or a father and a son, you know, so there's no way he was going to say, well, actually, I wanted to do it. Um, but he did, <laughs> very definitely. Um, and after Johnson died, um, he started to look quite closely at the journal that he'd done. And he'd written this long journal. He'd taken like three books with him and he'd filled full of all the things um, that he'd seen in the island. Um, but he, as, as somebody else said, you know, well, Johnson's book was a success. Everybody else, everybody enjoyed it. Um, but when Boswell's finally came out, so Johnson died in 1784 and Boswell's story of the, um, I think it's called A Journal of the Tour to the Hebrides. Yeah, that's what it's called. Um, Boswell's came out the next year. So he got onto it fairly quickly. And in a way, it was like a rehearsal for doing the biography because everybody was also expecting him to do the official biography of Johnson because he'd been talking about it forever. They all knew he'd been taking notes. In fact, they were worried by him taking notes because they thought he was writing down far too much of what everybody was saying. It was a bit like having a spy in their midst and they didn't like it at all. So everybody was expecting it. Um, so when it ca actually came out, um, people found it completely fascinating. <laughs> um, nothing could disguise the fact, this is what um, this man's written, Adam Sisman, who's written such an interesting book. It's called Boswell's Presumptuous Task, and it's all about Boswell writing the life of Johnson, and it's fascinating. But this is his little, a little quote from him. Nothing could disguise the fact that the tour was, as one correspondent described it, exquisitely entertaining. I have hardly ate, drank or slept since I got it. Um, unlike Johnson's journey, which was a serious topographical, sociological, even anthropological work, and I think you might sort of get a bit of a sign of that from what I read out, Boswell's tour was full of gossip and humour, um, enjoyable most of all because of the interplay between the writer and the companion. Indeed, much of the fun in Boswell's journal arose from his own presence in the story. Boswell did not spare himself when it came to describing incidents which showed him in a poor light. <laughs> As I have been scrupulously exact in relating anecdotes concerning other persons, I shall not withhold any part of the story, however ludicrous. And that's, that, that's, that's one of the complete fascinations <coughs> of it. Um, he dedicates, this, this is actually the th uh, fourth edition, I think. Um, I'll just double check that. It was so popular. First edition sold out in two weeks. That was seven, October 1785. The second edition came out in December 1785. Um, the third edition came out in August 1786. So that was, this was, you know, all very early. And then this one is actually later. This is 1807 and it's the fourth edition. So there's been a bit of a gap. A journal to the, of, the, of a tour to the Hebrides was Samuel Johnson by James Boswell, containing some poetical pieces by Dr Johnson relative to the tour and never before published, a series of his conversations, literary anecdotes and opinions of men and books, with an authentic account of the distresses and escape of the grandson of King James II in the year 1746. Boswell was always not quite a closet Jacobite, but, you know, he was the romantic, really, and he just loved the story. Yet at the same time, he, there's a very funny story of him um, trying to get permission from George III about how he should describe the, <laughs> how he should describe the young pretender, the you know Bonnie Prince Charlie. What should he call him? And he wanted to call him Prince Charles, and he was trying to get George III to agree. And he's, there's a description of him sort of in a levee, um, haunting George III. <laughs> 
trying to get him to, to say what he should say in his book, what he should call him, you know, what will be acceptable, you know. Um, this is the man who could dethrone George III, you know, at any moment. <laughs> and he's trying to get him to say, yes, yes, that's a good name. Call him Prince Charles. That'd be good. So in the end, they came up with this, the grandson of King James II. That's, that, that's, the, that's the sort of mealy-mouthed version of it. <laughs> um, the Journal of a Tour to the... So here, and then there's a dedication to this... Very long-suffering, I can only think he must have been friend, Edmund Malone, who was an Irish scholar and who helped him edit it. And he also helped him edit the life. In fact, he nagged Boswell for years to get it finished. Um, an amazingly um, kind friend, because it's all for nothing. Um, so he, he dedicates this um, to, to Edmund Malone, who sat with him every day and gone through his journal and told him which bits to leave out and which bits to write rather more um, diplomatically, if he possibly could, and all of that sort of thing. Um, and then he there's, a, there's one of these classic Boswell um, advertisements to the third edition, which, of course, was still while Boswell was alive, because he died in... 1794, I think. I'm trying to remember what date it was. It's around about then. Quite young man. Um, so in this is the third edition of 1786, animated by the very favourable reception, which two large impressions of this work have had. It's been my study to make it as perfect as I could in this edition. So, you know, he's always very um, keen to talk up his successes. Um, part of that is because he's actually trying to earn a living. Um, he was... A, a lawyer, but not a particularly good lawyer. Um, and he had a family in Scotland who he wanted to bring down to London, where he really felt most at home, um, but, who, but who cost him a lot of money. And he was always trying to get people to, you know, um, either give him a job or, you know, drum up some business for him. Um, so this is, this is how Boswell describes the reason for their journey. Dr Johnson had for many years given me hopes that we should go together and visit the Hebrides. Martin's account of the, those islands had impressed us with the notion that we might there contemplate a system of life almost totally different from what we had been accustomed to see, and to find simplicity and wildness in all the circumstances of remote time and place so near to our great, native great island. So th this, this is um, Boswell describing it. And then f it follows fairly closely on um, with a fantastic description of Johnson. And this is sort of like, in a way, the, the beginning of the way he would approach the life. Let my readers then remember that he was a sincere and zealous Christian of high church in, in, of England and monarchical principles, which he would not tamely suffer to be questioned, steady and inflexible in maintaining the obligations of piety and virtue, and so on. So he talks about him. He united a most logical head with a most fertile imagination, which gave him an extraordinary advantage in arguing, for he could reason close or wide as he saw best for the moment. He could, when he chose it, be the greatest sophist that ever wielded a weapon in the schools of but he indulged this only in conversation. You know, so that's often what we hear, these stories that Boswell wrote down. For he owned he sometimes talked for victory. He was too conscientious to make error permanent and pernicious by deliberately writing it. Um, he was conscious of his superiority. He loved praise when it was brought to him, but was too proud to seek for it. He was somewhat susceptible of flattery. His mind was so full of imagery that he might have been perpetually a poet. It has often been remarked that in his poetical pieces, which is, it is to be regretted as so few because so excellent, his style is easier than in his prose. Um, so then he talks um, a little bit more about how he looked um, 
So he was pro- his person was large, robust, I may say, approaching to the gigantic, <laughs> and grown unwieldy from corpulency. His countenance was naturally of the cast of an ancient statue, but somewhat disfigured by the scars of that evil which it was formerly imagined the royal touch could cure. That's this thing they called scrofula, which is a sort of tubercular infection that he had when he was a child. Um, He was now in his 64th year and was becoming a little dull of hearing. His sight had always been somewhat weak, yet so much does mind govern and even supply the deficiency of organs that its perceptions were uncommonly quick and accurate. His head, and sometimes also his body, shook with a kind of motion like the effect of a palsy. He appeared to be frequently disturbed by cramps or convulsive contractions of the nature of that distemper called St Vitus dance. He wore a suit of full plain brown clothes with twisted hair buttons of the same colour, a large bushy greyish wig, a plain shirt, black worsted stockings and silver buckles. Upon this tour when journeying, he wore boots and a very wide brown cloth coat with pockets which might have almost held the two volumes of his folio dictionary. (laughs) And in his hand, he carried a large English oak stick. Let me not be censured for mentioning such minute particulars, everything relative to so great a man is worth observing. And that's the thing that he brought to biography that other people had not. They wanted everyone to in a biography that people would appear to be perfect, basically. And there was a big distinction between public and private life. And Boswell blurred it, which people found utterly fascinating and sort of repellent, you know, both at the same time. One of the little bits that I thought you would find fun, um, you know how we had that joke about the oats and Scottish people eating it um, and only fit for horses in England? So they're together in the evening and Johnson and I had each had a bed in the cabin so they're on board on a boat. I think this, I'm not sure if this is the one where they got stuck. They were waiting for, for a passage to Mull. Before we reached the harbour, the wind grew high again. However, the small boat was waiting and took us on board. We remained for some time in uncertainty what to do. At last it was determined that as a good part of the day was over and it was dangerous to be at sea at night in such a vessel in such weather, we should not sail till the morning tide when the wind would probably be more gentle. We resolved not to go to shore again, but to lie here in readiness. Dr. Johnson and I had each a bed in the cabin. Cole sat at the fire in the forecastle with the captain and Joseph and the rest. I ate some dry oatmeal, of which I had found a barrel in the cabin. I had not done this since I was a boy. Dr. Johnson owned that he too was fond of it when a boy, a circumstance which I was highly pleased to hear from him, as it gave me an opportunity of observing that, notwithstanding his joke on the article of oats, he was himself a proof that this kind of food was not peculiar to the people of Scotland. You know, so they, I mean, this is what it's full of, the, these, these sort of vignettes about it. And um, it was, as we know, an incredibly popular book. He, the, the book he mentioned that had inspired them possibly to go is this book and I had actually looked at it before when I was looking at what I could show about the sort of wider British Isles because it's it was printed in the late 17th century so this is a book from 1698 by a man called Martin Martin and it's it was, it's a grey copy and it is A Late Voyage to St Kilda and of all the Hebridean islands to go to, St Kilda is still considered like a mission to get to because it's it's out on its own in the middle of the Atlantic and it's frequently battered by storms and waves and even when people get there, they can't necessarily get off boats. So it's like an astonishingly distant and wild place to 
to visit, let alone live. And people were living here at this time. I mean, they eventually left the island in the 1930s, but, but it's still, it still operates sort of as a bird sanctuary and also as a sort of strategic army thing now. So this was done. A late voyage to St Kilda, the remotest of all the Hebrides or Western Isles of Scotland, where the history of the island, natural, moral and topographical, were in as an account of their customs, religion, fish, fowl, etc. So this, and, and this was somebody who actually was a native of Skye. So the man who wrote this had been brought up in the Gaelic tradition. But he did go to Edinburgh University, so he... He, he had left the island and, and you know, lived in a, a different life. He wasn't the, uh, uh, you know, the poor tenant class of people. So, he, you know, he had an education. So he had some... But he was a person who was born and brought up in Skye. There's one of these astonishingly sycophantic dedications, <laughs> which I'll pass over. And then there's the preface um, where he says, you know, men are generally delighted with novelty and what is represented. So, you know, this this is a description of getting out to St Kilda. And there's the usual story of the difficulties of trying to arrive, of going, of setting off, thinking that it was all fine and they'd get there and the wind getting up and then trying to outrun a storm and you know, not outrunning it and finding that they're stuck in the storm and they're still miles away from St Kilda and, you know, really uncomfortable trip um, and probably very dangerous, actually. And then getting there and seeing people on the on the um, cliffs of St Kilda running because they're seeing a boat, you know, somebody's coming. And he was horrified to watch them leaping around on the sides of the cliff, you know, thinking that they were going to crash to their deaths because it's such a precipitous sort of terrain so this is the book this is the book this not this very one obviously but this edition of this book both Johnson and Boswell took with them when they went on that tour and that is quite interesting that they carried this book with them because they were looking for this sort of experience I mean Boswell was a low you know he was a Scot but he was from the lowlands he knew nothing about the highlands I mean they were really like another country and he was as 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 seeking the same sort of um, understanding, but with this slightly romantic um, Jacobite. Um, uh, it's not really. I mean, he let you know he was terribly fond of King George III and was highly, highly pleased to be noticed by the king. So it's not like he really wanted to upset the current monarch. Monarch, but he loved a good Jacobite story. And they met Flora Macdonald, both of them. They both describe it in the journals. So Flora MacDonald was the woman who helped save Bonnie Prince Charlie when he was fleeing the British. So she disguised him as her servant, as a woman, and she and Bonnie Prince Charlie, just the two of them, sort of left Skye and left, well, left the west coast of Scotland and she took him in a boat and got him away um, from the enemies. And so she was like the heroine of, the, of all Jacobite stories and she was still alive at this point and they were delighted to meet her. It is interesting how when you read Boswell now, it's just so easy to read. I mean, Johnson is, is sort of, it's not hard to read, but he feels much more 18th century. Boswell feels much more natural. It's just like, you know, we did this, we did that, we... And this is the story and, you know, the terrible storm where he was um, stuck outside. Um, it was at half an hour after 11 before we set ourselves in the course for coal because they'd been trying to go one way and they were getting blown back. 
Um, so they had to change tack and try and go somewhere else. As I saw them all busy doing something, I asked Cole. So Cole is an island, but Cole is also the, the, the laird of Cole. So that's why he's called the same name. With much earnestness, what I could do, he, with a happy readiness, put into my hand a rope which was fixed to the top of one of the masts and told me to hold it till he bade me pull. If I had considered the matter, I might have seen that this could not be of the least service, but his object was to keep me out of the way of those (laughs) who were busy working the vessel and at the same time to divert my fear by employing me and making me think I was of use. Thus did I stand firm to my post while the wind and rain beat upon me, always expecting a call to pull my rope. And this is a grey um, one, this Martin book. And grey has actually annotated it with little notes about... It's very unusual because he doesn't usually do it, so he must have been transfixed with this. He's gone over it. Um, there are, he's done it in pencil. And then in some cases, um, he, in fact, in all cases, he's gone over it in pen on the outside of this. So it's like an index to, to, different, um, to different parts of the, of the book. So he's got horses, 18, horned cattle, 90. These are kept on two small islands near St Kilda as well as the main island. The soil produces barley and oats. You know, it's all this sort of... um, No tree or shrub grows there. No bee ever seen. Inhabitants, 180. (laughs) And so on. Yeah, and then page 42, Isle of... um, I think that's Barra. Isle of... Hmm. Anyway can't quite read it. Leprosy, a disease of St Kilda, page 79. So, you know, that, that's a grey book. There we go. Thank you Thank very you. much. Uncover a truly unique collection. Visit Kura Heritage Collections online. Find them under Heritage on Auckland Library's website. This podcast was brought to you by Ngā Pātaka Kōrero, Auckland Libraries. Please join us again soon.